This is Malia Brown, and I am so grateful to bring you Many Ways to Peace. Thank you for amplifying peace just by listening. Thank you for listening to Peace Amplified. I'm so grateful for who we're with today. Here We're here with Kilo Zamora. He's a University of Utah instructor and fellow specializing in social change facilitation. He holds numerous awards and acknowledgements for his profound impact on others and social change in the communities. And he has designed and created the Peace and Conflict Studies course at the University of Utah. Kilo, thank you so much for being here with us. It's a real privilege to have you here. No, I'm, I'm glad to find out about you, and I'm excited to uh, get into our questions, and I'm excited about even getting some feedback from your listeners about uh, what they're getting from this or if it generates more questions and ideas and overall. Well, that's great. Would you be willing to tell us a little about peace and conflict studies and how you go about designing those courses, what you deliver to your students? Yes. So I'm... I'm really thinking through how we how we connect what's going all the fractures that occur socially across our globe and locally and how those fractures can either help us develop a better practice towards peace or how those fractures distract us from peace and in the end uh, students should be able to demonstrate their ability to move peace indicators in a community forward. And so it's not enough to just have a theory about, about peace, but what, how does it move into a practice? And so I'm working on um, a variety of different ways to reach students. If it's about looking at health indicators, happiness and laughter indicators, peace indicators, uh, mental wellness indicators, because our students have so many different interests. But I think at the center, if they really pursue them, uh, we could have a broader field of peace um, and in a practical way that will inform whatever careers they choose. So not to be too much of a generalist in peace, but but really trying to just extract a lot of profound examples in a different, all kinds of fields so our students see relevance in whichever framework they're using. Yeah, so peace is actually available really in any framework, right? They can go to their framework that works best for them and then amplify that peace there? Yeah, that's the, that's the idea. And so if we, if we center the, the concept of peace, um, as opposed to, um, making it a complement to something if we the real goal in these classes is to make peace at the center and then they think about all these different professions um, as the as the supporter of peace so if we for example if we think about health indicators there's a whole area called the social determinants of health and these are all the ways in which determine health outcomes in a community. Uh, if we use peace at the center of that, then we think about how does promotion of peace really create better health for our community? 
and how does our practice of working on peace concepts uh, decrease uh, stress levels? Um, how does it increase nutrition levels? How does it affect transportation? Because there's a connection between, if there's a lack of transportation, there's a lack of health indicators. And how does peace play an instru instrumental role in that process? So um, centering peace is, a, I think, a, a worthy area of study. It's a great scholarship to think about. Uh, peace is something that, um, again, isn't the, a secondary educate like a, a secondary node of education, but it's a primary node of education. Mm. And how did you come by way of creating peace as a primary node of education? Do you have something in your life as a background that drew you here? Essentially, what I'm doing in this Peace and Conflict Studies course is having students make practical connections to the areas that they'll be working in post-college uh, to benefiting our broader community and essentially arguing that if we use models of peace at the center of it, that uh, we can align our own values and morals to changing um, our occupation's outcomes, where we're no longer just thinking about transportation in a vacuum, for example, if that's the area you choose to go in as a career, you're thinking about how transportation will impact a community's happiness. And... Um, want to then transform transportation to increase people's happiness as one of your um, outcomes that you would design in your strategic planning as a transportation designer, for example. And the list just goes on and on and on, and students love it. They love that we're making it practical and feasible and not making peace seem like uh, just a theory, but it's actually uh, a way of practicing um, your everyday life. Well, and that brings up a really great point that, you know, peace is available in anything that we're doing and that in a practical way of life, what, what do you do for yourself other than delivering this information to the students? Is there something that you do for more peace in your life? Oh, yeah. So that's a, my in my own practice, I feel like I I I spend a lot of time facilitating dialogues on very controversial issues in in all kinds of communities, or not even controversial issues, but issues that can impact the well-being of a community. And dialogue becomes one of my um, main tools and. As a facilitator of dialogues, it has become a part of my own spirituality to be able to set up a space in which people can have honest, heart-to-heart conversations, work through issues that are dividing them. And as they work through their issues, I feel like I am enhancing my own spiritual and, and peace practices because I'm witnessing in the moment how communities are coming together for the common good. And it becomes very contagious in my life. And so not only am I 
like practicing it by doing these action steps. It's gone on for it's gone on now for 25 years of dialogue practice. That I these folks are my friends. This is the the culture that I live in now, and people know that part of what they're getting when they get me in their lives is somebody who really genuinely cares about seeing our communities uh, grow close together, live together, work together, and their diversity and the things that um, cause some conflict are very important to our having a more nutrient and happier life. I love that you said that People know what they're going to be getting when they get me. They, they're getting a dialogue practice, right? They're getting a conversation that's heart-to-heart. That is really quite an honor for someone to come to that space knowing that there's an open mind, an open heart for dialogue. Well, I Yeah, I, I hope so. You know, it's also it also means that it's, it's hard. It's also hard on the other side too, because I'm also just a human being, and you know, I, I want to have fun and you know, be light and allow just a, you know, everyday conversations to just occur with my friends. But there's also this this a line, and the line has to do with there will not be harming of other humans. It just can't happen, and that's challenging. You know that can, it can be challenging. Even it's challenging for me too because we can get caught up into the divides. It seems easier to just like joke about dehumanizing a certain person in your life that causes pain, and so just trying to cultivate that and but not be too dogmatic. Trying to be an, a, a super flawed human and to cultivate peace at the same time, you know, has its points of insanity uh, attached to it for sure. And a point of deep transcendence. It's, it's both. <laughs> <laughs> so that's the part that's fun. I think, right. Is the balancing act a little bit. You can balance both sides of there is an ideal to live to. And then there is, you know, the flawed kind of human. Yeah, yeah, and and really, I mean, that's the fun part about dialogues is that we, and the th- piece that I tell people all the time, the thing that I, I really love about human beings is we contradict ourselves. We're just completely full of all kinds of contradictions about how our values and morals don't always align with our actions. And if we just allow that, to also be part of the the love that we're providing our community and our and importantly ourselves that the contradictions come also the contradictions give us texture that uh, something I think really humbling comes out of it that you know perfection perfection in itself by the way in one of the lectures I I use all the time with my students perfection can be very severe and uh, can cause a tremendous amount of harm and can be linked to poor mental health. So when we're 
curating our lives and, and just saying that we are, we are the peace and we are doing things right all the time that um, we're not allowing these other parts of us to emerge and that depression and anxiety are at the door all the time. So we have to just recognize, you know, that we're, you know, our, our closest relatives are the apes and that we're just another bipedal featherless mammal. You know, we happen to stand upright a little bit more than our closest cousin but we're we're not very far off in terms of the DNA that we share. Well, I I get the humanity of that and the dignity that it provides to everything around us, right? When you say, you know, our cousins. I mean, it's a neat way of framing the dialogue. If you, I love the orangutans, for example, and the thought of going and just sitting in the forest with the orangutans is something that lights me up. And I I can't say anything to them. There's no words that I could use to express, but I can sit with them as my cousin, right? And watch or speculate or, you know, just be a witness to their existence. And that's a pretty peaceful place for me to be. Is there a place that you create kind of peace um, with the cousins of life? I mean, for example, what you do at Brighton is a great example, you know, in skiing and community. So, yeah, at, at, Bright, at Bright, well, before I talk about Brighton, I, you actually sparked something in me. I'm, I'm remembered, I'm remembering a time in which I, I was on the, on a university campus and I saw two men wandering around um, the campus. And they were obviously lost. It was like 7.30 in the morning. So I walk outside and I say, hey, are you two lost? And they're like, yes, could you help us find this meeting? And I said, absolutely. So I just took out some time of my day and I just walked with them. I walked them all the way to the building, into the room, made sure they were okay. And then I left and didn't think another thing about it. Well, I didn't know that those two men were actually there to help Jane Goodall get mm-hmm. to her meeting. And so they brought Jane Goodall in to see me later that day. And so I had a beautiful conversation with this woman who can just sit with anybody and bring about such a powerful, serene experience. And it's from cultivating a lifetime of building strong ties between our species and other species and helping us understand that one of the most powerful mechanisms of love is understanding itself. And that is really such a valuable tool for us. And so, yeah, when you were talking about it, I'm like, yeah, Jane Goodall, just being in the room with her and having a conversation was life-changing for me. I thought that was a very special experience. And to not yeah. know, you know. Yeah, to not know, keep going. To that not know it's what. Not, yeah, to not know that it was coming, right? When when we are in the moment, you mentioned being um, in the moment earlier. And when we're in the moment, we can just experience the moment for all that it is. You take the men to where they need to go and make sure that they're okay. And it changes your day in a way you don't have any idea, and unalterably so there's an impact on you later. 
for you get to meet Jane Goodall, sit in her presence, and be with one who has sat in the presence of others for years. Yeah. Yeah, I I wonder if if maybe you and I could just try an experiment together for your listeners. Sure. Yeah. So I I think, you know, our the listeners want to know what it means to be in the moment. So tell me tell me you know, what you're experiencing right now in this interview. Like what's how are you feeling about this space that you and I are creating and what could what could enhance it for you? Well, the first part of the moment for me is um, and a feeling in my body is an expansion of love, like a swelling of love where I get that you and I are connected and we're not connected by uh, proximity because you're obviously somewhere else in the world and I'm somewhere else in the world, right? But we're connected through our thinking and the desire that we have to serve others, to presence what is possible for love on the planet, solidarity, as you mentioned, um, and what could enhance the experience, right, is only the betterment of being able to look into your eyes so that I see my own reflection in you. Oh, that's, yeah, I, I would I would agree with you. I think that, me too, I'm, you know, this topic of peace is such an intimate topic to me. It's, I treasure it and I, I can feel that you treasure it also. I don't feel like I have to convince you of something. I think more we're exploring this together and you know, like we're trying to find out all the nuance of how different people uh, understand this topic. And it is a topic that requires some vulnerability and a lot of sincerity and authenticity. Uh, and it's, I mean, you're, that's what's happening between you and I. That's the kind of, field I feel like we're trying to to develop and you're right if we could be in the same room together um, it would remove a barrier that it can be is possible when you're doing a phone interview yeah which is also kind of laughable which we can share with everyone is that we tried to start out doing this (laughs) yeah you know, via the computer, and here we ended up on the phone, and it doesn't really create the power of what we can share, but it does. It did change the opportunity a little, which makes me think, you know, FaceTime is a great tool. The telephone was a really great tool, but what happens with side-by-side dialogue when we're really face-to-face? And you probably know that better than anyone being a teacher. Yeah, there is there is something special about being able to smell the people around you and uh, listen to the small sounds that their body makes and watch where their eyes move and um, how they're shifting in their chairs or when they're 
especially what's more really powerful when you put that together and we're there to build deeper community that it just galvanizes it all and the the humanity is enhanced in person but i also i do feel that even in these spaces where we're at distance we just have to work a little bit harder we have to rely on other senses to help us through this process uh, and it may not be all the senses we would hope for but uh, we're still trying to create this field and the field is around uh, how much we're into and how groovy we think peace is. <laughs> That's the best. I do think peace is pretty groovy. I'm glad you brought that up. I really am glad you brought that up. That is a galvanizing moment for me to think oh. about peace being so groovy. Yeah. it's. I mean, we... One of the areas that I, I really think about a lot, so I, I've worked on people's prejudice forever and, uh, and, and help them um, face their own hate for other humans. And it, um, for a long time, I would run experiential activities with them that really helped them bring it out from within and share their prejudice about other folks and when you're when you're really empathic uh, you actually feel what they're feeling at least to some degree you start trying to feel what they're feeling and when you're feeling a lot of hate inside of you because they're expressing the hate they have for somebody else it is a lot to absorb and then transform into something that is positive. And I, after running dialogues in that manner for so long, I felt the effects of what's called a secondary trauma or, and just, I felt traumatized by hearing so many conversations about how people didn't like this religious group or this specific racial group or this social economic group and would genuinely express their hate and fear and traumas related to that group and trying to to relate with them and then help them think through where their forgiveness might occur and where their learning might happen left me um, after many years in a space that uh, made me more fragile uh, and and have to to like go through a dark forest and find some new frames because I was feeling uh, deeply lost and depressed because the work of hate and dismantling it um, has to it just affected me and made and I didn't know and I didn't know how to get outside of it. Um, so it was, you know, it was traumatic. And now I'm in a place where I'm trying to bring in playful words like groovy and um, and reframe the way I run experiential activities and how I address, you know, 
the I I call it social cancer. The social cancer is hate, and how do we help people to stop ruminating on these things and uh, reframe it in a way that that is gentle and kind and patient? And I do I have to do that with myself too. And you know there. It's just kind of where I'm at now. Maybe it's because I'm a little bit older or maybe it's because I'm a little bit broken and maybe it's both. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you know, you said earlier, contradictions give us texture, you know, and I think in the vulnerability of what you just said, we can feel that texture, right? We can feel the texture of, am I older or, you know, maybe a little more fractured? So something else is seeping in here. Yeah. And, you know, if we're going to, I mean, if I'm going to, I can't speak for anybody else, if I'm going to cultivate my field of peace, then I need to be gentle to myself and find my, how to hold myself accountable. That's super important to me to be accountable to my actions, but also be forgiving um, and you know, forgiveness, forgiving myself is not easy um, because I've seen how people's actions have negatively have long-term consequences on people through all these dialogues. And so sometimes even the smallest things that I might do to somebody, I can imagine how it might have a long-term impact on them and how do I, you know, restore and provide justice and um, but also forgive and grow. And so it's quite a quandary and um, for me, but also it's a beautiful thing because I guess, you know, I, I, do, I do love the scars that people carry with them. It's something that says that they've lived a life and that they have to accept both the scar and maybe the smooth skin and or the the wrinkle and the agility they all have to be they all have to come with us um and so there's that i you know i always come back to those the beauty of our contradictions because it seems to accentuate the the human being themselves And I think there's a lot of conversation around, you know, as you mentioned before, perfection, right? Um, And the conversation on, you know, how do I be a more perfected human? And I think sometimes when we ask, when we talk about peace, people think that's what the conversation is, how to perfect the world. So that equals peace. But I, I think what you're saying, if I understand you right, is we can have peace right now without being perfected, that exactly the way we are, scarring, you know, a little bit of smoothness, maybe some bumps along the way, and the good that we did can lead us right in this now to peace if we're willing to, number one, forgive ourselves. Yeah, 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 I think you're, I think that's, I believe that. I really, I do. I really, I, I genuinely believe that, that everybody, regardless of what's in your past, 
has something to contribute to building um, and and allowing peace to become even more significant to our species. Um, and we don't have to, you know, continue to build on our negativities and. And at the same time, I also have to say that we're in social context. So all of the social contexts that we're in may help us more easily have access to peace and to build a peaceful context for ourselves. And other social contexts may make it tremendously hard. I just think about people who have been on the cradle-to-prison pipeline and it seems like their whole life had been kind of just pushed toward prison, and now they're in prison. And if they're one of our listeners today to think about, man, your social context you have while you're in prison can impact your ability to cultivate peace. And what does happen when you are able to cultivate it with those constraints? Like, even if it's the smallest thing, like, you are like a you are a candle in a darkness and it's so beautiful and it cannot be dismissed whatever level that you're trying it at especially when we put you in your social context that you're in well that's a really interesting perspective to look through the social context lens right so that we can actually start to feel more what the other person's feeling and going through. Does that feel peaceful? Does that feel, you know, like conflict? Does it, how can we bring them more peace in that, in that situation? Not trying to bring them something from where we are, but we're starting where they are. Yeah. You take people where they're at. I mean, that's just like one of the most basic tenets of a lot of um, therapeutic models, right? If someone comes in to see you for therapy the first thing we teach a, a young therapist is uh, you have to take the client where they're at. And, and really that's a philosophy that doesn't have to be grounded in just therapy. It's about start where they're at and then grow out from there. Um, but if you just hold them to your own standards of where you're at, it's so unfair and you're going to miss out on such a, fantastic opportunity so that's I guess a tenant of of um, for me anyways of cultivating peace is being able to understand where people are starting from and taking where they're at and they make their strides and their successes are theirs and um, it has its own value and hopefully we can just praise it and lift it up and um, see where you know where it might Take them. Um, and I would say, too, that sometimes just in this broader context, I think about often that at least my mind's traveling to right now, all these small areas of, of terrorism that's going on in our planet. This is back to the Peace and Conflict Studies course, I guess. And I think about these young boys holding guns, terrorizing communities. And I think about the social context that drove them, who put that gun in their hand, and who taught them how to terrorize a community, and how afraid are they, 
And what are the things they don't have options to and access to that would allow them to be, to have uh, a different way of life altogether? And, and why don't we consider that when we're considering these boys and um, the, the things that they're doing and killing and harming humans? Why aren't we thinking about the context that they're raised in and how would that change our response? Like we, we respond with bombs and bigger guns and more terror. So we terrorize the terrorists in hoping to decrease terrorism. But really what we've done is we've amplified terrorism. We've amplified the conflict and the, and there is an area in peace and conflict studies we call negative peace. And negative peace is when we use things like guns and, and uh, authority to regulate community. And sometimes it has deep consequences and may not get us to real peace, uh, meaning that a place where people will have transformation and communities will grow and become healthier. So I... I I I would in a in a very you know very cautiously go into that space with my students to think about what would be alternative approaches to working with young boys with guns in their hands who are killing human beings. Is another gun really what we're looking for? Are there real other opportunities um, to engage them? And what will decrease things like mass shootings on our planet. And why is it that most mass shootings in the United States are done by white males? What is going on in terms of just masculinity in itself that is somehow sending this message that these rampages are, are, are an option? And what is the best response? Is the response to build more prisons is the response to have more, you know, rapid prosecution. But, but before we even get there, what, why is there a trend around boys and guns and mass shootings? And what do we do in that? You know, how do we use peace as not a fluffy concept, but a real analytical tool to dismantle some true pain in our community. These are the kind of things we're trying to grapple with in these classes. Well, you know, somebody said to me along the way of what I'm doing here, they said to me, you know, what you're, what you're trying to help people understand or trying to get them to um, take from you, consume, you know, by what you're delivering is a concept. It's not a, it's not an item. It's not a thing, right? I'm not selling a widget or a hamburger or a set of shoes. It's an idea, right? So how do we make this fluffy conversation something concrete? You know, one, one of the ways you mentioned was by being in the moment, and that was a beautiful example that you gave and just trying an experiment and, and you know, what would this moment look like and what was it? What could, you know, what would make it even more for you and your question to me? 
And what, what do you think are some other ways that we take the idea of peace and we concretize it? We really bring it into our life as a practice today. And dialogue is one, for sure. But a lot of times, you know, people talk and talk, as you said, and what they do doesn't match. Is there something else, like a concrete, if I'm that person that's, you know, either just been released from prison or has had the opportunity to somehow come across this podcast, what can I do right now? Yeah, you're right. I mean, there's, there's like a, there's so many, there's so many things here about, um, you know, some, it's, I, I, I'm afraid of, I'm afraid of the language of unconditional love because it seems to be losing its meaning and it, and it does seem too lofty in some ways for me to say that you're going to have they're going to be unconditionally loving um, because we do have some, I, at least I do. I have some conditions sometimes. I feel them inside of me about what enhances my ability to love someone or not. So I, I say, I try to stay away from it to some degree, but it does always kind of like float around in my head. But I, I say that because um, if you go inside of unconditional love, you do start seeing examples that I think are informative here. But one of them is that when um, we think about us as being a part of a tribe, that we're, when we do something wrong, um, if a tribe starts to exclude us and kick us out of the tribe altogether, we can feel extremely isolated um, there's no sense of belonging. And these are the things I think um, accentuate people's um, negative behaviors. So ostracizing has its place but may not be the complete picture for helping people learn. Um so people are spent their lives being ostracized and maybe they have paid their dues in prison or whatever in their lives. So maybe they, you know, I don't know what they've done, but they've done these negative things and the, the tribe has kicked them out. And the tribe, I would just say back to the tribe, it's not enough. The real question is how do we bring them back? And how do they participate? And what can their role be? And how do they, how do they grow and learn? And I don't have all those. I don't have those answers. I have, I have some, I have questions because the. I think each of us respectively have a part of this solution because we've studied it in different ways. A mother has studied that when their own children have done behaviors that seemed unforgivable. Um, but yet still want to keep their family intact. Um, couples that have been together for a lifetime have seen times in which their partner has done things that that didn't that felt like was unfair, were unjust, that were trespassing, and yet they have found ways to bring them bring their relationship back to a space together. Or, you know, I've seen people who have been. Um, homeless and uh, 
been kicked out of their homes or life has just got them down and yet have started nonprofits because people have invested in them and um, they see a bigger purpose. So each of these people have parts of the answers. And I think what we're looking for is always trying to connect to them and find out what part that they have to offer in this process. And I, I just, I, I acknowledge, I know, I know little, if not nothing. And that these, all these people have are my teachers and we have something to teach each other about how we're going to make new scaffolding around peace as a main process. And I'm interested in that. I find value in what that means in our community. So my final project in one of my classes is that they have to move a peace indicator forward in the community. And students have found really practical ways to do that. Um, students have to make a connection to what, what drives them in the community and what would help them move peace and enhance peace um, in general. And so they'll, they run dialogues with groups that are fundamentally different from each other to find common ground. Um, they, they address, uh, make connections between suicide prevention um, and what peace might be. They think about providing healthy food, um, accessibility in, in areas where there are food deserts. The list goes on and on and on, and really all of those are concrete answers to your to your question so i'm just i love it there's a cornucopia of ways we can get to these things and i love that too and i i love that you know there's an a really an action item to move a peace indicator forward and i think about the individual person because that's who we're talking to right now and the individual person, I was thinking, what could we do that would move a peace indicator forward for an individual? And I, I was thinking as you were talking, it's a dialogue. It's a, Okay, it's an inner dialogue. And it occurred to me that we could maybe just even ask ourselves one question, which might be, you know, what would help me feel more love today? And then when we were able to answer that question for ourselves, maybe we'd be willing to ask it of another in our life. What would help you feel more love today? I love it. And then, yeah. That's cool. That's a great one. Yeah. It, it really is a, a an accumulation, isn't it, of all of these things. And then we have a we we have a more whole picture and Yeah, I mean there the the solution that's a great one just to be able to ask that question of yourself and to ask it of others and maybe even help help that process along, that's an excellent way to do it. Um, maybe another would be just learning to tread more lightly on our planet and more lightly on ourselves. <laughs> so just like, what does that mean to tread less, you know, a little bit more lightly on ourselves and on our planet? And how do we, how do we do that? And, and, you know, but again, I guess another a practical side of me keeps saying, if our goal is to, to promote and enhance peace on our community, then these kind of questions make a lot of sense. 
But if our goal is not to do those things, those questions seem idiotic. Wow. And that goes back to, you know, what are you willing to commit to and hold yourself accountable for, as you said. And I think there's a lot of people who um, think that that accountability conversation is an infringement on their personal rights right? You can't hold me accountable for anything. And we're not really saying that. We're saying, hey, look, we're not holding anyone accountable here. But we know in your mind, there's something you that you find important. And so for whatever it is that's important to you, it's that piece of the puzzle that matters. And be willing to hold yourself accountable for that piece of the puzzle that's uniquely yours. Yeah, yeah, it's true. And um, one one small thing that I try to do in my life, it's silly, but it, it's so helpful to me. I really, really uh, hope to create spaces where people can be their best selves. And even if it's people who have wronged me, Creating space for people to be their best self is so addicting to me because what I get from it um, is I see humans in action and I witness them like in their in their own glory and um, I find that to be magical uh, and it's just like. I don't know. It's just there's something special about it to me about how you create environments for people to do those things. And I don't need to be in an environment where I, I can point on them and say, you know, I've seen that done better by somebody else. Or doesn't you were kind of mediocre today, as opposed to saying that was a this is the moment and you did it and that was extraordinary and it was unique. And it was worthwhile, and I grew from it, and it was fun, and it was you, entirely you. And that has been one of my favorite things to do in my life. Um, And that's one of the reasons why I love being a teacher, making environments for people to be their best self, uh, and holding myself accountable to that process allows me to be my best self too because it's you got to bring your a game if you're going to try to create environments for people to be that way <laughs> it can be exhausting but it has deep replenishment <laughs> when i what i hear you saying right is that it requires you to grow bigger than you currently are like let's be clear it's not like it's exhausting because you're out there doing the thing it's because you might have to get more creative or more curious or you know, use your intelligence to think about another way to deliver it. Yeah. And, oh, here's another one. What's well, actually one that you're doing so the listeners will be able to go back and review it. So if the listeners are listening to your language, you're using a, a, a communication method called reflective listening. And it's where you continue to tell, give me feedback on what I'm saying to you. And you're saying things like, if I hear what you're saying, you're saying this. And it is a question, and it's also a a confirmation. 
And when you're participating in a dialogue with somebody, that one tool of reflective listening is one of the most powerful tools you have in your toolbox. And you as an interviewer use it very well. And it is a way that you can really enhance your peace practice is by understanding how to integrate that into your whole life when you're having conversations with folks is just tell them back what you're hearing, make sure that they know that you're listening to them. Uh, and so it's a, it's a valuable tool and it's one that your listeners can start using today. Mm. Isn't that neat that they could take the opportunity right now to go back and even listen from a different perspective to our conversation, right? They can listen to the entire conversation as a guide to reflective listening. Yeah. Yep. You've got it. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. For sure. That's yeah. that's, and that's you. And that was just like something maybe you weren't even thinking about, but that's part of your um, subtle practice of peace because it's now integrated into a part of your own culture, your own being. And the more we have these tools and we're using them, we forget that we're using them. And then as over time, we are exuding these qualities that we think are valuable, but we're not even recognizing that we're doing them. Mm. Well, that makes me feel like I've accomplished something here today. And I thank you for that. I really thank you for that. So I'm thinking about what matters to you, right? In the most peaceful world that you possibly can think of. What does that world look like? Oh, Oh, I don't, oh, that, that question is, okay, let's see, okay, that's a good question, because you're making my brain, like, go a million miles an hour, like, I feel like I'm an atom being split, and that feels fantastic <laughs> to me. Okay, the, uh, I think that maybe the, the thing I would say in my classrooms that I believe deeply is laughter. I would say, yes, it's about laughter. It's about having multiple points a day when human beings can laugh. Laugh at themselves, laugh at context, laugh at uh, things that just touch them. And if that one item could happen, um, for all of us, if that was a wish that we put out there on the planet, I know exponentially peace would grow overnight. And I know that I know what that sounds like on the and that sounds crazy and and loose and easy to say. But think about how hard it is to laugh when you have despair, when there's no food on the table, when you're working free jobs, when you are getting F's at school, uh, when you watch your child fall and hurt themselves, the laughter can be such a difficult thing to achieve and yet has such a healing quality to it and is like a, an audible, um, an audible, um, what's 
word, it's like an, it's an audible indicator of the health of a community. And so we, if we could just find billions of ways to increase that, it would be beautiful. I watched this in the Dalai Lama all the time that, that, that I watching him laugh and giggle to himself is really part of his own peace process. And it's something I look forward to every day. I try to have and want to see just like these chances to giggle and laugh at myself and think, boy, Kilo, you know, you just did it wrong. (laughs) You know, all of that, it's all of that stuff. That's my, that's my answer. That's my super simple answer. Laughter. What a delicious world that is. I can experience that from the bottom of my soul. I, <laughs> there was a time in my life when um, it was so dark. I literally gave myself a mandate, and it was three things. I couldn't do anything else. Um, I mean, maybe taking a shower, I could do that. But um, I, I gave myself a mandate, and I said, well, here's your job today. One is to laugh. Two is to make someone laugh. And three is to laugh at yourself. And every day that was my job. And I'm so grateful for you expressing that in the world because I get how much peace it brought me. And I get how I recognize my own peace the more I kept laughing. And then the more I brought laughter to others, I could see their peace. Um, And in some pretty dark times for some other people too. That's a pretty peace-filled world. And one I'm looking forward to. I really, really love that. And in, in your best case scenario for yourself in 10 years from now, what would your life look like? Well, I, I always tell the people around me, especially the people I love the most. Um, I'm always trying to prepare myself for a death, and my own death. And I just, I say that um, not as in a way to be morbid, but in a, in a way that says that um, when things feel really good to me and feel like I've, I've accomplished something of value and there's a, some harmony in my life, I, I reflect on this is a good day to die. This is a good day to say that um, I've lived a life well and worth living. And when I think of a question about 10 years from now, it would be like my, my biggest hope for myself is that I can still look in the mirror and say that to myself or look inside and say, Kilo Zamora, this is a good day to die. Your life is in balance and in harmony that you feel you love yourself and you love what you are, you're doing. And really the only times I don't say that are the days in which I feel like I need to rectify and I need to rebuild something. And, and there's something that might be crumbling around and I need to stay here and work on it and, and restore it and see it through. And so 10 years from now, I'll, I'll my pray that I will be saying that that thing to myself. And wherever I'm at will be where I'm supposed to be. If it's as a teacher or a student or, you know, just a wanderer or whatever it might happen in my life, 
that's uh, that's my hope. There are often times when I'm interviewing people and they give an answer that literally flips my atom. <laughs> like where I, I am, I'm so in awe of the answer that I wonder how I could never have thought of it or how it's being brought to me in that moment. And I want to thank you for that. You know, the, the, the thinking that I could say every day from now until whenever, this, when I reflect, right, that, that this is a good day. This is a good day to die. Because I've done what I came to do here. Yeah. Yeah, doesn't that feel good? Yeah. Like, doesn't that feel like a good medicine? Yeah. Yeah, mm-hmm. that's that's why, I, I mean, I don't know when it came to me. Maybe, oh, it was, you know what, I can give some credit. When I was a young man, I was running dialogue with an older man, and he uh, was a, a retired police officer from Detroit, Michigan, inner city Detroit. An African American, I was a young Latino, he was in his 60s and I was in my teens and we were running race dialogues and um, one of the things he told me his name was Curtis Curtis Davenport Curtis said to me Kilo if you live your life by what people will say at your eulogy you'll always live a good life and I for a long time thought about that like what is it like, what's a eulogy? I didn't know what the word eulogy was. I had to look it up. And then I thought about, what will people say at my funeral? Or what won't people say at my funeral? And then somehow that just, like, germinated a seed in me to just take his idea further for myself and to say, you know what, there's something really beautiful about my own death and about dying uh, in a way that is, connected to my own harmony and uh, how much I wish that upon our whole planet that people will get that one privilege to die feeling like they've had a life well-deserved. So that's, yeah, it was Curtis who started that. I mean, it started from running race dialogues with him, which were very challenging and eye-opening and he was a master facilitator and I loved uh, working at his feet. And what a grace that is to have a mentor who will plant a seed and the seed will grow for years to come, right? Yeah, yeah, it's been years. I think it's been 28 years. It was 1992 when he told me that. Mm. Wow. And I know that there's a grace that you provide for your students each and every time you get in front of them. And, you know, for our listeners here, too, that profound conversation and that something here may have hit them just like that so that it becomes the seed that they can cultivate on their own, in their own time, in their own way, with their own, you know, special kind of watering and their own special kind of nurturing and that it'll grow within them. That's really fun. I love your framing of that. That's a really fun thing to think about. Maybe it was you, which I, I, I would more wish upon the world that the way you ask questions and the way, I mean, it's, this is the podcast. It's, 
something that you've constructed, and I love to think about how what you have done has created a, a ripple or um, a reverberation from a bell, and these the humans listening to this, or maybe even some of the non-humans hearing this, it affects them profoundly, and uh, they go with it. They run with it. Just run with peace, whatever it takes. I don't care. Just go with <laughs> it. Take it as far as you possibly can. Keep running. That maybe will be our rally cry. <laughs> run. <Yep>. Run. <laughs> run, peace, run. <laughs> Oh, that's pretty fun. I'm looking forward to what image I can create in a, in a cartoon for that one. Thank you for that. That is great. Run, peace, run. Oh, my goodness. It has been such a pleasure and just so much fun and really eye-opening to be in this conversation with you. So thank you for bringing a slice of academia to the conversation, for one, um, for bringing the conversation and dialogue that you know, in texturing, we can look at contradiction and we can feel the feeling of the pain and the discomfort and then we can come out of it and laughter and, you know, a whole new kind of image for ourselves and where to go. It's just been such a grace to be here with you. Yeah. Um, thank you. I feel inside of myself, I, like right now, I feel a little euphoric and... Um, I, I feel special, special meaning that it feels special to be asked these questions. And I am glad you're doing this work and you have a great practice about yourself in the way that you uh, conduct yourself and your work and the energy you bring to this. So it's been quite a gift to be on the phone with you today. Thank you. Thanks, Kilo. I really appreciate it. And hopefully we're going to get to hear more from you in the future. You're already very much in the public sphere. So we're be tuning in to what you're doing at the university and um, what you're doing with social change and here in the community in Utah particularly. But I know there are other ways for us to reach us. Where can people find you in the Internet? Okay, in the Internet. I mean, there's only one. There's there's two kilos of moras on the planet Earth right now. <laughs> one of them loves to like show lots of marijuana paraphernalia, and is a younger version of me. Maybe that's not me. That's <laughs> and that one's in California somewhere. And then the other kilos of mora is just right in Salt Lake City. So. Anytime you Google the name Kilo Zamora, you can find me. Or I would tell your listeners to try DuckDuckGo Duck, over Google. Maybe we'll have a conversation about that someday. Um, <laughs> yeah, just search the internet for Kilo Zamora out of Salt Lake City. You will find me in all kinds of funky, interesting places. Lovely. Okay, Kilo, looking forward to staying in touch with you for in the future. Talk to you very, very soon. Okay, see you. Bye. Bye. If you would like more information, please visit our website at peaceamplified.com. May you have peace in your heart, peace in your community, and peace in your world.